Father, it is fair to say that you are more willing to speak to us than we are to listen. And so we pray that you might speak to us this morning. Give us ears to hear, we pray. Give us hearts, minds that understand. And indeed, soften us that by your spirit and with your help, we might be those who obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Forgive me for being a little overly simplistic. It's a sort of preacher's rhetorical uh, kindness. But I take it at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, there are only two types of religion when it comes down to it. And actually, you see both of them through the lenses of Scripture. On the one hand, you've got religions or or ways of engaging with the divine fundamentally based upon what we do. If you can just make the right sacrifice, if you can just eat the right food and do the right things and, and press the right buttons, then the God we are trying to please perhaps will be benevolent to us in some way, will be on our side and will give us good things, will give us rain and fertility and crops and victory. And so the obedience goes up and the blessings come down. It's the the vending machine deity model. You, You pop the right things in and you press the right buttons in the right order and out come the goodies for us. And it's there in the pages of Scripture. You see it in the surrounding nations around God's people. The the Hittites, the Canaanites, that's their model. But then you see it within the people of God as well at times. I think the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. The kind of classic archetype in one sense gives us a picture for what's going on. Come, let us build ourselves a city, they say, with a tower that reaches to the heavens that we might make a name for themselves. In one sense, trying to make an assault upon God by what they do. And what ends up happening in Genesis 11? Well, the Lord comes down to see the the city and the tower the people were building. It's pitiful, our laughable little efforts. And of course, the Lord coming down to see his people shows us something of the second type of religion that's out there. It's not about what we do, but rather it's about what he has done. It's not do the right things and you get what you want from the Lord. It's the Lord's kindness as he comes down to his people. He makes it possible for us to know him. It's about him, it's not about us. And while there may be many, many, many examples of religion type one in the world, there are very few of the second. I think there's just one. And it's why we're here this morning. It's what sets Jesus apart. It's what sets the gospel of Jesus apart from every other type of spirituality or religion or anything. It's him coming down to us, him condescending himself, lowering himself, recognizing that all that we do is never going to achieve very much, actually. It's never going to get us back to him. And why does that matter? Well, I think at the heart of the letter to the Galatians, you see something of that distinction going on. The distinction between what we do and what God has done. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're just looking in on things. You're, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're not quite sure where you stand. You're not quite sure what you make of it all. And you thought that being a Christian mostly was about well, that first type. Doing the stuff to make God happy. Best behaviour to keep him off our backs. Trying to keep our noses clean. Trying to keep on his good side. 
And yet this letter that Paul wrote to these churches that we're looking at for these few weeks, these ancient Christians in Turkey, says something very different. It's not what we do that makes us right with God again, that makes us friends with him. No, it's what he has done for us. It's not popping the coins in and out come the goodies. In one sense, it's just free grace. It's just the stuff comes out. We've got to pick it up. But it is slightly weird in Galatia, and this is a little bit technical, but I think it's quite important, so try and stick with me. This letter from Paul was written to, well, the clue's in the name, the churches in Galatia. Um, That would be modern-day Turkey, and you can read in Acts who was in those churches. As Paul visited them, what kind of people would you see on a Sunday? Who would be in your small group? who was sat next to you as you join on a Sabbath morning, whenever it is. And Paul visited them and he saw them with his own eyes. It's uh, Pisidian Antioch, it's Iconium, it's Lystra, it's Derby or Derby, I'm never quite sure. Um, And they seem to have been composed mainly of Gentile converts, non-Jewish people. There may have been a few, but primarily it was Gentile converts. Okay, so you've got these... These churches in Turkey, full of people, mainly from Gentile, pagan, vending machine backgrounds. And yet, do you remember a couple of weeks ago from Matt, Paul will urge them not to go back to Jewish practices, like the food laws that Peter was succumbing to. And so Paul, do you remember, he pulls them up on it. There are celebrations, there's circumcision, there's special days that people seem to be peddling to these churches. You'll see it in, uh, next week and in weeks to come as well. Maybe even I think the key verse in the whole letter is, I think it's 5 verse 1. It, it's a famous one. You probably know it, some of you. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And we think, again? But Paul, these believers are primarily Gentile background believers. It's not like they were once Jewish law keepers and then they trusted Christ and then there's a a temptation to go back to the law again. Paul, how can you say again in 5 verse 1? We'll see it next week, chapter 4. Paul's concern, though, is that they are going back in some way to something that they already had or were already ensnared in. How can they go back somewhere that they never were in the first place? Does that question make sense? I think the best answer is this. And I think it is that their old muscle memory, pagan God-appeasing, works mentality religion will be reawakened again in some sense by these Jewish laws. These celebrations, circumcision, special days. Their whole pre-Jesus worldview had been the vending machine deity idea. Put in the goodies, put in the money, sorry, and out come the goodies. Do the right things and your God will be pleased with you. Press these buttons and you'll get what you want. And I think Paul's concern with these Judaizers now is it's it's a different vending machine. But you pop in different things. You pop in Jewish food laws and circumcision and special days now. You press different buttons. And out comes a similar result again. Out comes a God that is happy with you. And gives you the goodies. Different vending machine, but same mentality. 
And yet Paul says, no, 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 no. Remember, it's not what you do, it's what he has done. It's not by works, it's by faith. Even on your absolute worst day as a believer, because of Christ, you are loved and accepted and cherished because you are joined to him. He loves you. It's not what you do. And so he's concerned about their pre-Jesus muscle memory being triggered again by the law, I think. Don't go back to the vending machine model. Step away from the vending machine. I think that's something of the conversation that's going on. And so come with me to chapter 3. And I think we'll see quite how contemporary this is, quite how relevant this is for us. Because I think our hearts are always being drawn back to that vending machine. The perpetual drift, trying to do stuff to get God to do what we want, maybe. To make him pleased with us, or particularly pleased with us. Trying to add or supplement or enhance in some way what he has done and he has finished. As I come to chapter 3, and you'll see how he seeks to stop them regressing, to, to persuade them not to go back. He confronted Peter back in chapter 2. And in a sense now he is confronting the Galatians for something quite similar. Two big ideas, two arguments in these verses. Um, verse 1 to 5, he says, look back to your experience. And verse 6 to 14, he'll say, look back to your scriptures. So 1 to 5, experience. 6 to 14, scriptures. Firstly, 1 to 5, look back to your experience, says Paul. Let me read them again, and, and this is a kind of Paul piling up questions for them. It's all questions in these first five verses. Let me read them again. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask you, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Okay, so they started by faith, by believing a message, but now they are seeking to move on by works in some way. And what was the message? Well, look at verse 1. It's an extraordinary verse, isn't it? Have a look down. Because they didn't physically see it. They didn't physically see Jesus before them. They weren't there at the cross. It, it was decades later. So how can Paul say, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified before their very eyes? Well, it's because he preached the message to them. It's as if they were there. The faithful preaching of the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus in, in their place had, had brought them to life and had turned their lives completely upside down. And friends, it is only through that message that life comes. It's nothing else. And maybe you're here and you're not quite sure where you stand on stuff. Maybe that is you. We've always got different people in different places exploring the Christian message. Maybe it's your first time. Maybe you're a regular here and you've been here for years. 
I think I'd want to say today would be an amazing day for you to grab onto that message for yourself or to receive that message, to receive that truth yourself. It will change your life, as I think it did for the Galatians. It will turn your life upside down. Jesus gave himself for us. He died on the Friday and was raised again on the Sunday so that you and I might be forgiven, so that he might take the Father's right anger against our sin upon himself. Why? Well, actually, Matt covered it a few weeks ago. 2 verse 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, that's a bit technical. You can listen into the sermon from three weeks ago for what that means. But these next three words are the key ones I want you to latch on to. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul preached of this Son of God who died and was raised again, who loved him, them, us, and gave himself for us. And they heard, and they accepted, they grabbed it. And what happened? Well, what would you expect Paul to say in verse 2? What is the evidence of them believing, do you think? Well, for Paul, it's them receiving the Spirit of God. And he says it again and again and again. It's there in verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish, verse 3, after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Or verse 5, I ask again, does God give you his Spirit? That is the evidence. The God who came into the world came by his spirit to live within his people. They believe and they receive. No longer do they live now in the land of the flesh, the old way. Now they live in the land of the spirit. Intimacy with God and indwelling from God that will change them from within. More on that in weeks to come. But Paul says to them, And Paul says to us, was that an amen? It might have been. (laughs) Paul says to them, and he says to us, if we're believers, you have his spirit living in you. There aren't different tiers of Christians. As we trust him, as we believe, so we receive his spirit. And that is not through our obedience or because of our law keeping or because we pop the right coins in and press the right buttons but simply because we believe a message. You heard it, you received it, you accepted it, you you trusted it, and it transformed you. And it is a powerful message. So you say, well, why would you stray from that? It's nonsense. Why are they tempted to stray from that message now? Maybe that's our question. It's a good one, I think. Again, we've covered it slightly in previous weeks, but maybe there's something very humbling about grace. You will know that if you're a believer here. There's something very painful about accepting that we bring nothing to the party but our sin. All your stuff you want to bring along. Look, look, God, look how good I am, Lord. He's just, yeah, it's just soaked in sin, I'm afraid. And if someone comes and tells you, well, do you want to grow up a bit as a Christian? Because we do, don't we? We want to grow up. We don't like being kind of babies in one sense. 
We want to be maturing. And someone says, well, the gospel message is an amazing start. It is the start, actually. That's how you get going. But if you really want to mature, you need to dig deep a bit. You need to work a bit harder. Try a bit harder. And just you add some of these things into the mix and give God a hand in this, then that's a really attractive message. Self-reliance can be a really attractive thing. If we've earned it and we've worked for it, we can feel proud in a sense. And it can make us feel safer because it's not, if it's not just a gift from the Lord, then we don't feel quite so much in his debt. If it's not all of grace, but us doing quite a lot of the heavy lifting, there's something attractive about that. And what does Paul say? Step away from the vending machine. It's not how it works. The gospel of grace is the way into the Christian life, and it is the way on in the Christian life. It's how we are born, and it is how we are growing. It's something we never move on from, or can add to, or out, outgrow, or better, or anything. Jesus is enough, and he will always be enough. And that is day one for you as a Christian, and day 10,001 for you as a Christian. We never move on from grace. Now, does that gospel of grace, that faith, that trust, that belief, that being right with God lead to a changed life? Well, yes, I take it it ought to. But it is always belief, trust, faith that must come first, and then the actions it's never the other way around. It's, it's not I live differently and so God is pleased with me. It's no, because God is pleased with me, so I want to live differently as one of his. It's like a huge lorry. Think of a huge lorry. And the powerful cab where the driver sits must always come first. It's always the trailer that comes next. It's never the other way around. Put it the other way around, does the thing move? No. We can't get them back to front. The lorry won't drive. It is always faith and then an outworking. Our changed life does not lead to us being right with God, and it can never do, but it flows from it. And get those things the wrong way around, and life gets very muddled, and assurance disappears. It's the time of year where people are looking for churches in Oxford and around the country. And it's why at Mordham Road we will unashamedly seek to keep going on about the gospel of grace. It's what we sing, it's what we pray, it's what we preach, it's what we talk to each other about. It's why we'll take the Lord's Supper in a bit. At least we'll try to keep clinging on to those things. Because we are to be those who believe and who keep on believing. And so we never move on from it, we never add to it or better it or outgrow it. Because his message is enough. So that's the first piece of evidence, Paul says. Look back to your experience, Galatians. Your, your life and the spirit did not come through your obedience, popping in the right coins. It came through your faith and your trust in a message and actually he goes on and says it's always been about faith. And so second point, second thing he wants us to look at, verse 6 to 14, look back at your scriptures, he says. Verse 6, 
chapter 3 and verse 6. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham will be a vital piece in their puzzle of faith. And actually, this verse, verse 6, starts a discussion about Abraham that will go on in the weeks to come. But his point is this. The importance of belief and faith and trust in God and his plans and his promises is not God doing something new or different. No, no, it's always been that way. It has never not been that way, he says. And so just as Abraham believes God and and was made righteous, so, well, the Galatians were as well. And if you're a believer, then so have you been made righteous through trusting God, believing God. And Paul continues, verse 7, see if you can spot the recurring word through these next few verses. I'll try not to make it quite so obvious, but verse 7, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And again, the reason this matters is we can get muddled with it. I wonder if you can hear something of their argument, perhaps. I mean, you care about Abraham, don't you? You want to be part of Abraham's family, God's family, Well, Genesis 17, verse 11, they might say, God says you are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Maybe that was part of their patter. Their sales tactic, circumcision, comes from God for his people. That's how he does it, they say. Abraham is the man of circumcision, they might say. That's how God's done it from the start. But Paul says no. No, it's all about faith. It's like a drumbeat banging through those verses. Did you spot it as I read? There were markers and signs for God's people, and they had sacrifices, good sacrifices to make. They had good commands to keep. They were ways of showing their faith, and they were good for a time. But like milk, milk is good for a bit. It can be kept for a season, and then milk's time is done. Sometimes that fridge in the kitchen, the milk in there, its time is done. And it's been there for a while. And so circumcision and celebrations and special days are done now. We've moved on from them now. And anyway, at root, those markers from being God's people, that's not what made them God's people. Now, ultimately, it was their faith in him. And Genesis 17 is not the start of the story. For Abraham, Genesis 12 is the start of the story. He was a man of faith. The lorry always has to be the right way around. Faith is what comes first, and then action. And then Paul says it's not just for Israel, actually. From there, like a stone in the pond to the very ends of the earth, through Abraham's faith, through him being made righteous, all nations will be blessed. More on that in the weeks to come. But that's true for pagan background Gentile Christians in Galatia. Through Abraham's faith, all nations will be blessed. That's for pagan background, largely Gentile Christians in Oxford. 
because all nations will be blessed. And so we are part of God's family through Abraham, through Christ. Maybe Paul had particular people in mind as he moves from verse 9 to verse 10. Or maybe he just knows how the argument normally carries on. Maybe there were those saying, well, you have your faith, Paul, that's fine. I'll have my obedience. But Paul says that's a dead end. Don't go there. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it's written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith, like Abraham. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. You want to live by the law, says Paul? I guess you know your law pretty well. What does Deuteronomy 27 verse 26 say, he says? Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. My Galatian friends, if you are leaning on the law to make you right with God, know that you've got to keep it all. You can't miss any of it, everything. If the law is what is making you righteous, there's no cutting corners, there's no turning a blind eye because God is so good. Perfect. He can't pretend you've kept it all if you haven't. If you're basing your being made right with him on law-keeping, you're going to struggle. It's a bit like being pulled over on the motorway for speeding. The police car is there, apparently. The police car is... I've never been pulled over on the motorway for speeding. Let me just clarify that. Imagine, though, the police car, I guess, is there behind you. Sirens on, you both slow down. And the police officer comes over to chat to you. Put your window down. That side, window down. And you smile at him and you say, I'm fine. Do you know my windscreen wipers are regulation standard? I've cleaned them recently. My lights are all good. I wasn't on the hard shoulder. I've not been drinking and driving. And I've kept so many of the laws, you wouldn't believe it. We're going to be okay, aren't we, yeah? I'm a really great law keeper. And the policeman looks at you and says, yeah, but you were doing 130 miles an hour. You are still a lawbreaker. You may have kept 612 of the Old Testament laws, that is 99.8% of them, but that still leaves one, and that one still condemns you. You are still a lawbreaker. And if we rely on the law-keeping and all the good we do, as these Judaizers presumably were in some sense, and that law will condemn us because we can never keep it perfectly. It doesn't make us righteous. It just makes us realize how unrighteous we are and how much we need to live by faith. Because righteousness comes from God. Maybe about this point we are throwing our hands up in despair and thinking, how, how do we do this? How sinful are we? You know the reality of your own heart. You know the reality of your week just gone. And so Paul ends where he began. He ends up back at the cross. He's back to the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You see, 
Christ redeemed us. He bought us back. He rescued us. He gave us freedom. How? Because he became a curse for us. He took the curse that we deserved, that we might be free. He gave us his righteousness that we might be friends with God and receive his spirit. Galatians, why would you voluntarily go back and put yourself under the law again and find yourself cursed again? Walden Road, why would we? Now, we never move on from the message of the cross of Jesus. We never move on from the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We are free from the curse of the law. We are filled with the Spirit of God. We are given his righteousness that we don't deserve. And I reckon if we are believers here this morning, many of us will know that. We know what we have. We know who we are. But I reckon if we're believers here this morning, there will be a difference between what we, what we know on a Sunday morning and then how we live on a Monday morning. Maybe it is you have that awful day as a Christian. I don't know how you define that for you. Perhaps there's a particular sin. Perhaps there's a drift. Perhaps there's the hearts that wander, whatever it is. You have an awful day, an awful week as a Christian. And suddenly you feel like your assurance has just gone down the plug hole. Surely God's not that keen on you, really? With that thing? Does he really tolerate you? Does he really want you around? And our assurance goes. And yet, friends, Jesus is enough. Faith in him is enough. We're not made righteous through what we do, but through what he's done. Or maybe you really, really want something. You've got an interview coming up. You've got an appraisal. You've got a deadline. You've got an exam. You've got an appointment. You've got a friend in trouble in some way. And suddenly you find yourself at the vending machine again. And muscle memory kicks in. You just think, if I can just put the right stuff in and press the right buttons, and then the goodies will just pop out, yeah? Surely God will hear me. Surely he owes me almost. You'll get the job. The appraisal will go go well. The deadline will be hit. The exam will be passed. Your friend will be okay. The test results will come back and it'll all be all right. Or maybe it's this. Maybe it's that you feel you are stagnating as a believer. You follow Jesus for a time and you've, you've reached that mediocre in the midlife time. And you think, if I can just dig deep and work a bit harder and add some good habits in, if I just get up at five and pray and read a bit more of my Bible and a few more Christian books, then I'll grow and then I'll flourish and then I'll mature a bit more. And if I do those things, God is bound to change me, isn't he? It's part of the deal. We need to be careful, because those things might be really good things. But suddenly you, you miss a day of that thing, and you feel condemned again. And you feel your assurance has gone again. And it becomes clear you began to trust in those things that you were doing for him, rather than him and what he has done for you. 
before we know it, it's almost as if we are into the Christian life by believing and on in the Christian life by works, by what we do. And the lorries turn back to front. Why do our hearts do that? The answer is always to go deeper into what we already have. Appreciating the beauty and the depth and the sufficiency of what is already ours. There is never a day that is not a grace day, a Jesus day. In by faith in the Lord Jesus and on by faith in the Lord Jesus. In by his grace and on by his grace. Never about going back to the vending machine. And so Paul says to them and to us, look back to your experience. Look, did, did you receive the Spirit through what you did? No, no, no. You received it through a message, trusting that message. And then he says, look back to the Scriptures. That's always been the way. God's people have always been about faith, trust, believing God. And so look to Christ and know that in every age and stage, and at every challenge, at every hurdle, he is enough. And don't ever go back. Let's pray. Lord, you know the tendency of our hearts to drift back, to find assurance in what we do. And so we pray that we might know more of the kindness and the depth and the beauty and the goodness of the Lord Jesus. Lord, forgive us. We want to grow. We want to be more Christ-like. We want to put some of those good things into our, into our lives, perhaps, and yet guard us from trusting in them. Help us not to get the lorry back to front. Help us not to find ourselves at the vending machine. Help us to trust you, we pray. Thank you for your patience with us. Amen.